about somebody that has had a significant role in your life. Maybe they are here today, maybe they have passed away, but it's somebody that you know or have known personally. Maybe you still count on their input into your life. But there's a reason that you think the way that you do about them, and it's probably because they made a very good impression on you when you met them. Maybe you credit them for where you are today as a result of the investment that they have made within your life. Maybe you look back and say, if it wasn't for their fingerprints on my life, if it wasn't for a word of encouragement, if it wasn't for a word in a proper season, I don't know where I would be today. And probably every one of you are thinking of somebody different than I am right now. But I bet I know a few things about them. Because there are similar qualities in all of our favorite people that they seem to have in common. Number one, I bet that they were not consumed with themselves. I bet that they were not selfish people. In fact, I bet that the more you got to know them, the more humble they grew. It doesn't mean that they had a a small personality. Maybe they had a big personality. Maybe when they walked into a room, everybody knew it because they were the life of the party. But even in that personality, there was something about the way that they interacted with people where they constantly deflected the praise to other people. And maybe you were a recipient of that. Maybe you don't remember much about what they said, but you will never, ever forget about how they make you feel or about how they made you feel. And your admiration for them is probably not about what they have. Your admiration is birthed out of what they gave, what they gave to you, what they gave to those around them. And the best thing about the people that we hold in deep admiration is this. The closer you got to them, the more authentic they became. The closer you got to them, the more authentic they became. I pray, Father, that over these next few moments that you would begin to reveal your word to us in such a way that it is applicable to our life and that we can take it and that we can live it for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. What I hope about the people that you deeply admire is that there wasn't any duplicity in their life, that they weren't faking it, that, that goodness just kind of flowed in them and through them. And, and here's something else that you probably didn't think about as it relates to the people that were important to you or most important to you, but they probably didn't live their life and haven't lived their life with closed fist, but they lived their life with open hands. And they live their life that way for you. And today, as I wrap up this series on guarding your soul, the guardrails are the habits that we live with to make sure that the people on the inside of us, the person on the inside of us, is the same person that everybody sees on the outside of us. Three guardrails to make sure that the difference between our character, who we really are, and our reputation, who others think of us, is the same thing. And as we have said throughout this series, we are constantly startled and stunned when there's this discovery on the news, and and maybe it's something that takes place nationally or internationally, or maybe it's some people that you know and you work with, and, and you discover as they get found out that they were living a life that their spouse didn't know anything about. Or maybe something was going on financially that was illegal and nobody knew about it, And when the story breaks, their career is over, they've destroyed the family, they've ruined their reputation, and they've undermined the security and the confidence of the people that were counting on them. And when we hear those things, our first thought 
is often this. Maybe we say it, maybe we don't. How could they live with themselves? How could they live with themselves with all of that going on in the background? And, and when we think that or when we say that, the implication is this. I couldn't live with myself if that was me. I couldn't live with my conscience if that were me. But actually, as we have learned through this series, you could. If left unattended, your current self may not be your future self. And you could become a person that you might not even recognize. In fact, it tells us in Matthew 24, verses 12 through 13, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. In other words, speaking of those that are involved in a church setting, because of the atmosphere of the world in which we live today, the temptation is going to be for you not to care about your soul, and in doing so, your love for God, your desire to please him is going to grow cold. Tells us that in the last days, there will be lots of people that because they don't care about their souls will not even recognize who they become. And the theme thought that has been throughout this series is this. The health of your soul determines your capacity for duplicity. The health of your soul determines the capacity for duplicity. Your soul being that inner person, that person that when you're looking in the mirror, you know who you really are. You know all of your secrets, and it determines how wide the gap is allowed to be in your life between who you pretend to be in public and who you really are in private. And that gap, as it begins to grow, if our conscience is not right with God and not aligned with God, then that gap begins to grow more and more, and suddenly you can find out that you are miles away from the commitments that you made. You may be miles away from the vows that you took, and you look in the mirror and you say, who is that person looking back at me? Because the health of your soul determines whether you close the gap and you keep it closed or whether you live a life of trying to manage the gap between who you are on the inside and who the world thinks that we are. And we are capable of the unthinkable and unimaginable if we do not take steps to care for our soul and to put up guardrails that will keep us from destruction. Because where there is duplicity, and let me tell you something, you want to know one of the reasons the world holds the church at arm's length, and all of us have heard this before, is because it's full of nothing but hypocrites. Have any of you ever heard that before? It's full of people that has duplicity within their life, and God is calling his church in his last days to close the gap and let's be genuine in who we are. And so in this series, we've talked about ways to, to fix that and to close the gap. The first message within this series, the first guardrail that we built was to surrender your will to God. The idea being that every single morning you get up, and according to Romans chapter 12, you lay yourself as a living sacrifice on the altar, and you say, Lord, here are my feet, my hands, my will, my resources, my mind, my dreams, my imagination, I'm giving it all to you and ask that if there's anything that takes place in my life today that would begin to cause a gap, that you would instantly let the bells of the Holy Spirit in my conscience go off so that I can close that gap. That prayer sensitizes you to the work of the Holy Spirit. 
It is a reasonable and logical thing to do, we are told. The second theme of this series was to monitor your heart. You have got to pay attention to what is going on on the inside of you. Specifically, we were talking about the seeds of guilt and anger and greed and jealousy. Those will rot your soul and you leak. They don't stay on the inside. Those things will begin to infect every relationship that you have. They contribute nothing to you, but they have the potential to take so much from you. And today, guardrail number three, and here's where I want to begin to unpack this third point. This is something that we all have in common. Do you know that we all desire someone's applause? We all desire someone's applause, their approval, their acknowledgement, their admiration, their attention, their affirmation. We all want to be loved. And this begins really, really early. Now, I'm a grandpa, and my grandkids call me Popeye. Some of you are old enough to know what that means. I do not like spinach. This is what pizza can do for you. <clears throat> so, recently when I was at my grandkids' house, they have a trampoline in the background, in, in their backyard, and as I was sitting there with my coffee, and for those of you that are parents and grandkids, you're, grandparents, you're going to get this. My, my grandkids constantly say, hey, Popeye, watch this. Hey, Popeye, watch this. And they, they begin to bounce on the trampoline. Hey, Popeye, watch this. Hey, Mia, can you watch me? Hey, look over here. And they're bouncing. And they'll, sometimes they'll jump and land on their rear end, and they stand back up, and I'm going, ooh, ooh, that's great. That's really good. And again and again, hey, 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 watch this. Watch this. Watch this. And about 25 times in, you're going, dear Lord. Oh, that was amazing. You landed on the other cheek this time. And we look at that and we say, what is that? Oh, I hate to tell you something, but what you had in you as a kid is still there. Something in you and me constantly wants to say, hey, did you see that? Hey, did you catch what I did there? Hey, did you watch that thing that I sent you? Hey, did you see what I posted on social media? Did you see? Did you see? Did you see? Hey, watch this. It is in us. And the problem is that our affirmation and our recognition buckets, they leak. It leaks. We constantly are in need of more and more of it. And the nature of an appetite is that it always needs more and there's never enough because no appetite is finally and ever fully satisfied. That is why I'm prophesying to you today, after you eat a good meal and you go home, Within an hour, you will stand in front of your refrigerator and you will open the doors and have no idea why you are standing there. And you're just going to look. And if, and, and if you're a teenager, it happens way more often. And the mothers yell and scream, hey, close the door. We're not trying to cool the whole house. Now, some of you have heard that before. Because the nature of an appetite is there's always more to have. It's got a one-word vocabulary, more. And so what happens, and, and this isn't anybody's fault, it's just an appetite that we have to manage. Over time, our love and affirmation that comes our way so often, we get accustomed to it. We feel entitled to it. We become dependent upon it. And oftentimes we don't even know what's happening and we're unaware of it until something happens and we feel that it is missing or we feel that it's slipping away. Like 
I don't know why they didn't invite us over this time. Or she didn't say she loves me this time. Or they didn't ask for my input this time. Or they didn't call me for my advice this time. No bonus? I got passed over again for a promotion? Wait, wait, coach, what? I'm on the bench? No heart? No likes, no emojis, no shares, no mentions. And all of a sudden, we begin to recognize that our desire for affirmation begins to slip away. And when it starts slipping, the natural tendency that we have is to cling to it and hang on to it and close our fists. And when we do that, it begins to affect us and people notice. And when they notice, they begin to step back from us. And the more that you scrap and you claw to try to get back something that you feel is slipping away, the more it begins to deteriorate your soul. And here's what happens. We try to salvage what we have, and in doing so, what we cling to always diminishes. And worse, clinging diminishes us. It makes us small. And the person that you admire the most, the person that you were thinking about today, somehow personally avoided this, which is why you admire them so much. And they recognized and discovered a secret life to keep their soul healthy. And it is a critical guardrail for us to build if we want to preserve the integrity of our soul. And the idea that we're going to talk about for just a few moments today is reflected in a single statement made 2,000 years ago by one of the most famous people who ever lived. And it's something that I think about all the time, and I'm going to ask you to think about it as well. But before I give you this statement, I need to give you a little bit of the background and the backstory. In Mark chapter 1, verse 4, the Bible tells us, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I, I cannot think of a better word for the Bible to use than the word appear. It's, it's the best word that could have been chosen because out of nowhere, 2,000 years ago, in a Judean desert, in the Jordan River Valley, out of nowhere, this man that people think is crazy suddenly appears. And what's interesting is he is not preaching where the people are. His demographic study was horrible. He is preaching where the people aren't, and the people go to him, and he is speaking a specific message of repentance and forgiveness of sins, which is so offensive to the religious people of the time, because in Judea, they had an entire institution set up for how you deal with sins. If you wanted your conscience clear with God... Then you went and you bought a, a lamb or a dove or a pigeon or a or sparrow, depending on how much money you had, and, and you took it to the priest and they, they cut its neck and the blood that was there represented the covering of your sin and you were made right with God through that sacrifice. A whole institution was set up for this. And John the Baptist shows up in the desert, and by, and by the way, if you've done any research on this, you will recognize that it was at least a one day's walk to get to where he was, and it was not an easy journey to get to him. So if you wanted to hear him speak, you had to walk out into the desert, and his, and his message was basically this, and this is my words, not his. He's, he's proclaiming, it's broken. The whole system is broken. It's corrupt. Everything that you need to know as he's preaching, uh, preaching in the middle of nowhere is that God is about to do a new thing 
And here's the most amazing part that the text tells us. In verse 5 of Mark chapter 1, it says, The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Now, we all know that the authority of the word of God, it means that every word that is spoken in the word of God is true. It, It has full authority. Everything is true. However, let's just think for one second that this might be somewhat of a little hyperbole. Let's, let's just say, rather than all of the countryside and all of the city people going out to see him, that just 10% of the people went to see him. That would mean, based on the population, there were literally thousands upon thousands of people that were flooding basically a barren area of the desert. And as far as you can see, tens of thousands of people are going there day after day after day. And John is preaching And he is baptizing. No one's ever baptized before. Before that, you gave yourself a bath, and it was called ritual cleansing. Today, we call it a shower. But John is baptizing. And he's having them confess their sins, and they were lined up to be baptized in the river. And the world at that time is is lined up, and they're going, what in the world is going on? And in Jerusalem, the institutional religion hears about this. And they begin to send some people out. They're going out there to find out whether John is claiming to be the Messiah because if he is, then they know that this is a political movement. Anybody that's attempted to take on that mantle was always, there was always civil unrest and and bloodshed. And so the leaders of the temple, they go out there to find out what's going on and John tells them, listen, I am only the warm-up act. I am the warning act You need to go back and tell your bosses that they are broken, that the institution is broken, but there is one that is coming after me that is about to do something new, and you need to get out here and get your heart right with God and get ready. And the thousands of people, huge crowd, are going crazy when they hear this. They loved it. And he kept telling them, I am not the main act. I am not the main reason you're coming. And day after day, he would end his messages with this that's found in Mark 1-7. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I. Now, you need to understand that John the Baptist was a powerful man at this particular part. Thousands and thousands of people are following him. His crowds are huge, and they loved him, and they were supporting him. And he says, there is one who is coming that is more powerful than I am. And then he uses these words, the the straps of his sandals, I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, if you were following somebody who was extremely popular, and he's talking about one that is to come, what he is saying is, You may appreciate me and you may be following me right now, but you need to know that I'm not even worthy to be a slave of the one who is yet to come. Just wait till he shows up. And in John 1.29, it says, the next day, John with his thousands of people, he's out there preaching and baptizing, and it says he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, he stops everything. And he points to Jesus and he says, look, look, it's not about me. You think I drew this crowd for me? It's never been about me. I want you to look. And his next statement bounces off because of the culture that we live in. But it was earth shattering 
And it was so crazy that nobody understood at the moment when he said this. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He looks at the crowd and he says, you've been to Jerusalem so many times to offer sacrifices, but this lamb is provided by God, and I'm telling you, this will be the final sacrifice that will ever be needed for the whole world, and he has shown up here. And it's not an animal, it's a person. And I have told you that he is more powerful than me. It's interesting because the way that the Greek is interpreted here, the original would, would mean to say, that he has the power to pick up and carry off the sins of the whole world, past, present, future. That's how strong this Lamb of God is. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he realizes that they're not getting it. They're just looking at him going, we came to see you. And so he tries to explain it, and it comes out just a little bit clunky in the way that it comes in our language, because in verse 30 of John 1, it says this. He said, this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And they're going, uh, what? He goes, listen, listen. There's, there's one that comes after me. He surpassed me because he was before me. And, and they didn't have a preacher then to try to explain all of this, but John was trying to say, there is an eternal aspect to Jesus Christ that I do not have. He has a different view of things than I have. And so the people that are standing out there see all of this, and they begin to turn their eyes. In fact, it tells us in John 1.35, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. Now, I want you to know that John had his own disciples. Thousands of people were flooding to him. I mean, he had a big, 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 big church. He was pastoring a lot of people. And he was sitting there with two of his board members that day, and he begins to say to them in John 1, 36 and 37, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him, they said this. They got up and they followed Jesus. And they unfollowed John. They went to a different church. They took a different job. And just like that, the guys are gone. Now, the rest of John's fan club got a little bit disturbed by this. They're going, hey, hey, we see a trend. We're doing some studies here, and the trend doesn't look very good here. In fact, they begin to run to his defense, and you know, they're saying, listen, don't worry. Don't worry about that other guy. He tells confusing stories. I don't think people are going to get it. I, I don't think that this Jesus person, I don't think it's going to catch on. You just keep doing what you're doing. You're doing the right thing. You know, we're going to get through this, and we're going to get our people back, because I don't think that his message will last. And, and in John 3, 26, it says, they, they came to John, and this is the way they said it to him, Rabbi, in other words, we believe that you're our teacher. We're, we're loyal to you, Rabbi. That man, now do you, do you notice that the way they describe Jesus begins to tell you that they're taking on John's offense? That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. John, that's your gig. It's your nickname, for heaven's sakes. Everybody knows you're John the baptizer. And, and this guy over here is doing all this stuff to take away your, your game here, and he's copying you, and, and everybody knows who you are. And what's worse... Everyone is going to him. 
And John, if you don't step up your game, you're going to lose your entire ministry. There'll be nobody left following you. Your name is going to disappear. And what comes next is amazing. And folks, this is liberating because John doesn't fall for it. And John sees clearly. And this needs to be as much of your prayer and my prayer as it was for John. And this is a perspective, and it's, it's so difficult to maintain, especially when we see good things beginning to slip away from us. But this is the way that we live if we want to safeguard our soul. And this is how you live with less need to be in control and less need to be seen and admired. In John 3.27, to this John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. A person can only receive what's given them from heaven. Now, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to put down your notebook pad for a minute. Put down your phones. Some of you are taking notes. Some of you are playing games. Some of you are writing your, your grocery list. I know. I can see. But I'd like you just to put that down for a moment, if you would. And I'd like you to take your hands and I'd like you to turn them palms up and put them in front of you. In this, in this posture, it's, it's not comfortable. There are a lot of other more comfortable ways that we can do this. And I want you, I want you to say this with me. A person can only receive what is given from heaven. Say that with me. A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. Folks, this is the way to live. And it's not intuitive, and it's not easy, and it goes against every grain within us that cries out for affirmation. And John the Baptist got this. You can put your hands down. I was about to say you can do whatever you want with your hands, but that's not true. You can just put them down. And I want to ask you a question. I don't, want to, I don't want you to answer this out loud because it's rhetorical questions, but did you choose your family? Did you choose your IQ? Did you choose your body type? Did you choose your opportunities? Did you choose your health? Did you choose where you were born? I could go on and on and on because how many variables are there beyond our control, our ability to control that have determined who you are today? This is why there is no room for pride in any of us ever, ever, because we didn't make ourselves. The other side of that is this. That also means that there is no room for fear in any of us ever as well, and there is no reason to cling because ultimately whatever is placed in your hands was beyond your control to begin with. And John says, here is how I live my life, and a person can, can only receive and carry and hold what was given them from heaven. So why would I lose my mind, and why would I lose my peace when heaven chooses to take something out of them? And here's the way John the Baptist said it in John 3.30. He must become greater. I must become less. 
The only way for Jesus to become greater is for me to be less. And John says, that is fine, because that is why I am here. A person can only receive what is given them from heaven, and I exist for the purposes of heaven and not my own. And then he says this, and there's some really interesting wording in this, and I could probably spend 20 minutes on it, but I just want to read it and make a quick comment in John 3.31. John the Baptist says this, the one who comes from heaven, he's speaking of Jesus, is above all. And the one who is from the earth, and John's saying that's me and that's all of us, belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. And so we look at this and and John, John really belonged to the earth. I mean, he might have been the earthiest, earthy, earthy guy that we've ever seen in Scripture. I mean, he's running around and he's eating locusts and he's wearing wild animal furs as he's running around, you know, and... And he's saying, look at the contrast between Jesus and me. He comes from heaven. He has an eternal perspective that I don't have. I live on earth. The best I can do is think earthly thoughts. The best of my desires are earthly desires. And so in the contrast of these two, who do you really want to trust? An earthly perspective or a heavenly perspective? And what is fascinating is in our vernacular today, what John would be saying is, hey, I enjoyed my 15 minutes of fame while they lasted, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it. I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to close my hands in an attempt to keep my crowd because a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. Imagine living like that. Some of you are sitting there, and in your mind you're thinking, if I live like that, I'd never get anything done. If, if I live like that, I would never get any credit for anything that I have done. And we have this image in our mind, and the reason that we think of everything that we've done is because we think it was our talent, it was our magic, it was our, you know, we're the glue, we're the personality, we're the driver, we're the hero of our own story, and we get so deceived about who we are that when a little bit gets put into our hands, we cling to it, and we say, it's mine. This is mine, and I'm going to hang on to it. I'm going to fight to protect what is mine, and your heavenly Father says, I love you enough to teach you a new way. You don't need to worry about being successful and accomplished because whomever I call and whatever I call you to do, I will enable you and anoint you to be a success in it. It'll be to your benefit, but it'll be to my glory, and I'm not going to share my glory with anybody. And John gets it, and he opens his hands, and he says, receive what has come to me from heaven. I am I'm not going to start clinging to something that I feel slipping away. And that brings us to our third and final guardrail of the soul. First of all, you surrender your will to God, everything to him. Second, you monitor your heart because your heart leaks, and what's in there will infect others. And thirdly, you open your hands, and you live your life leaving them open. And every morning in your prayer, after you have said, Lord, I surrender myself to you today, everything that I've got, I I lay it on the altar. You keep my spirit sensitive so I know what your Holy Spirit wants me to do. And Lord, monitor my heart so that there's no guilt, there's no shame, that there's no jealousy, there's no envy there, because that will just rob me. Then you say, Lord, help me today to live with open hands because I can receive only what is given me from heaven because if I close my hands I will begin to think that I'm a bigger deal than I really am I will begin to fight 
for the accolades and the recognition. And I want to be grateful for everything that is placed here and everything that comes my way. I will not cling to what I cannot keep. I will not cling to what I cannot keep because it makes me small, because it makes me self-centered. It limits what God can use me for, and it limits, when my hands are closed, it limits what God can put into my hands. Listen to me, this is important. It constantly, if you live with clenched fists, it constantly keeps you hanging on to the last thing rather than opening them up and saying, God, what's next? And it keeps you living in the past. I will not cling to that which I cannot keep because that will rot my soul. So remember this. What you cling to eventually decreases in value every single time. What you try to hang on to will decrease in value. And what you make available to others has the potential to multiply. Here's where our struggle comes from. I'll be honest with you. I I wrote this this week, and I had to stop several times in the middle of this because we get so tempted to just want to hang on to something. And I live in the public realm, and, and there's so many times I have to keep reminding myself, this is God's church. It's not mine. There's going to come a time when I'm... I'm going to die, and I need to be forgotten, but the name of Jesus Christ needs to be lifted up. And, and we, we have this fear of loss, you know, and it wars against our soul because when we feel like we're losing something that we, that we have really liked, we, we want to try to hang on to those things, and we think it all revolves around us, and, and we make a mess, and our soul begins to atrophy, and our faith begins to die. And in our fear of loss, we also understand that we war against our own happiness. You close your hands and you shrink your capacity for happiness. You open them and you watch what God can do. And all of us know people, talented people. They've got unbelievable opportunities and abilities and exposure and they have tons of stuff and they are so ridiculously unhappy because they've lived their life like this. I've got stuff and I'm hanging on to it. I'm I'm not about to open my hands because I love what I've got. And God says there's a better way. If you want health in your soul, open your hands and see what happens. We should fear the consequences of closing our hands more than the consequences of losing what is in them. Because ultimately, open hands are a reminder of who gives us everything and his strength and will in our life. Worship team, if you'd please come. Folks, we've all been to good funerals. You're going, I I don't know what a good funeral is. A good funeral is when they talk about the person and you begin to recognize that we never talk about what they clung to. We talk about what they gave away. We talk about the way that they invested their life into other people. And from that, we intuitively know that we, always, we are always measured not in what we hang on to, but in what we open our hands to, what we give away. And, and here is the invitation that Jesus gives to those of you that may not be following him yet. Jesus invites you into this life 
Maybe you have fought so hard to hang on to what you've been given because you didn't think that God is a blessing God. You didn't think that your affirmation bucket would be full enough if, if you just open your hands and you let other people get credit and, 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 and you quit worrying about whether your name is known and, and you just say, Lord, I can only receive what is given me from heaven. And John the Baptist said, crowds don't matter. My name doesn't matter. There is one that comes after me whose servant I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. So there are these three guardrails to protect your soul, creating habits that will allow you not to manage the gap between your reputation and your character, but to say, Lord, I want to be the same person when I look in the mirror in the morning to know. Everybody that knows me knows that I'm the same on the inside as I am on the outside. There's no duplicity within me. So surrender your will every day. Not my will, but thy will be done. It's the most reasonable thing you can do. Monitor your heart especially for guilt and anger and greed and jealousy, for you leak, and these will rot your soul. And thirdly, open your hands and leave them open. The health of your soul determines your capacity for duplicity.